I'm sure everybody knows that the presidential election is just a few weeks away, and as always, there is so much at stake. I think I speak for many of us when I say that we're hopeful by November 4th, it will all be over again for another four years. I doubt that many of us will miss the nonstop political ads. And I think we'd also agree that 2020 has been a really tough year. At a time when we as a nation desperately need to be united, we often seem more divided than ever. And that's sad and it, and it weakens us. And I'm sure you've heard this many times throughout this season, but we can disagree and still love each other. We can disagree and be friends. Here in the church, we are united in Christ. And nothing, nothing should break that unity. And, and with such unity in mind, I, I want to tell you this morning about the perfect president. And before I go on, let me very be very clear. I am not, I am not talking about a current presidential candidate or anyone else that's running for political office. I said the perfect president. And the word perfect is the key here. There has never been and there never will be a perfect president. Not even close. That's because all presidents, past, present, and future, are human. They're flawed, just like you and I are flawed. They have some strengths, but they also have some weaknesses. They do some things right, but they also do some things that are not so right. They need Jesus just like us. Now that being said, there, there was a man who was perfect, but he never ran for political office. Instead, he took care of the poor. He fed the hungry. He spent time with the outcasts. He brought healing, both physical and spiritual healing. He sometimes clashed with the authorities, but he never sinned. When he called individuals a brood of vipers or whitewashed tombs, his words were true. He stood for truth and righteousness. He wasn't interested in fame, but he was famous. He was also poor. He had no home. People didn't always understand him. He often challenged people to grow. And when they failed at that growth, he provided forgiveness. He wasn't a politician. He could be very tough. And still there has been no one more compassionate than he. He lived on earth during the first century. And back then the people wanted to make him president. They actually wanted to make him their king. And I'm sure most of you know who I'm talking about. That perfect president would be Jesus Christ. But of course he wouldn't be interested in the job. This morning, we are continuing our study of John's gospel, and we're in John chapter 12. The scripture reading that I shared just a few minutes ago was one that we would normally read on Palm Sunday, the week before Easter. But you know, this has been such a crazy year, so why not talk about Palm Sunday on October 11th? I think we need some reasons to celebrate. 
what we call Palm Sunday was a, a day of great importance to the Jewish people and to Jesus' mission. Like many Jewish pilgrims, Jesus journeyed to the city of Jerusalem. The Jewish people were gathering there to celebrate the Passover. Now, if you remember, the Passover actually happened when God passed over the Jewish people as he brought death to the firstborn of the Egyptians. The, the night of death was the last plague, last of the plagues before Pharaoh set the Israelites free. The Jewish people were spared the plague of death because they heard God's voice, they heard God's word, his message, and they responded with obedience. Jesus, though, had another more important reason for coming to Jerusalem. His hour had come. Throughout John's gospel, there have been times when we'd heard Jesus say, my time has not yet come. Or John in his narrative would say that Jesus' hour had not yet come. Well now, as you just heard a few minutes ago, the hour was here. Which means the time had come for Jesus to go to the cross. When the Passover happened in the Old Testament... God told the Jewish people to sacrifice lambs. Each family took the blood from the sacrificial lamb and spread it over their doorposts. The angel of death passed over those households with blood on the doorposts. Those inside were spared by the blood of the lamb. Within a week of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the true Passover lamb would voluntarily sacrifice his life for ours. Our sins are washed away by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day on a colt. It was a young donkey. And this was to fulfill the pro prophecy concerning the Messiah found in Zechariah 9.9, which says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You know, typically, a mighty king would enter the city on a, a stallion, and he'd do that to proclaim his power and his majesty. Jesus? Jesus rode in on a a donkey. Riding a donkey was, was a sign of peace. It was most often associated with a traveling merchant or a priest. Jesus came to bring peace with God. He came in humility. And Jesus came in righteousness. As Jesus rode toward Jerusalem, John noted that a large crowd had gathered. Many of these people had witnessed Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus was their hero. He was a celebrity. He was like a rock star. And, and the people took palm branches and they went out to meet him. Luke's gospel tells us that they spread their cloaks on the ground before him. And this display made a, a great triumphant carpet. Laying their garments and, and palm branches on Jesus' path demonstrated the people's submission to him. 
In 2 Kings 9.13, a similar carpet was laid for King Yehud. 2 Kings 9 reads this. It says, Then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Yehu is king. The palm branch itself was a symbol of of Jewish national pride. Palm branches were displayed after battle victories and during festivals. They were imprinted on coins and they were used as decorations in the synagogues. John told us, he said, the people cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Hosanna is Hebrew for, O save, I pray. They, they were praying for Jesus to save them. The words, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, are from Psalm 118. And the people then added their own words, even the king of Israel. You know, a similar song today or proclamation today might be the British proclamation of God save the king or God save the queen. In our nation, we might hear the song, hail to the chief. To honor a president. With that Palm Sunday parade, the people thought that they were holding an inauguration for their king, a political and military power to free them from the rule of the Romans. But there's a little irony here. They couldn't give Jesus a title that, that he already held, Jesus was already the king. His kingdom was not of this world, but it had come to our world. And in the days that followed, Jesus shattered everything the people believed about power and kingdom. And by the end of the week, Jesus was rejected and abandoned. The Jewish people missed their king. They missed the Messiah. And John tells us the disciples didn't even understand what was happening. They didn't see the symbolism. They didn't see the, the prophecy of Zechariah applying. The disciples only understood after Jesus rose from the dead. And that's what's so great about us today when we read the Bible. We, we've got an advantage of those who are actually in the Bible narrative. And that's because we can look back. We know the story. We know how it ends. We know how things played out. We understand what was going on. And the fact is, is that actually makes it easier for you and I to learn. And there are at least three important lessons that we can learn from this passage. And to do so, we're going to primarily focus on John's quotation of Zechariah's prophecy from the Old Testament. See, first, the, the Jewish people didn't realize that as the, the perfect king, Jesus came to bring peace with God. Peace with God is the first. It's the, the main reason Jesus came to earth. John was referring to Zechariah 9.9 when he wrote, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Again, coming on that donkey's colt was a sign of peace. And maybe you're sitting there this morning, you're wondering, well, peace with God, what... What does that actually mean? Well, our, our sin is direct rebellion against God. It separates us from God. Jesus mediated our peace with God. He brought reconciliation between us and the Heavenly Father. 
John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, without Jesus, God's wrath against our sins remains. There, there is no peace. Romans 5.9 says, Since there, therefore we have now been justified by his blood, the blood on the cross, how much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? The Bible frequently speaks of God's wrath. And wrath is something we don't like to hear about, especially wrath, the wrath of God. We like to focus on God's love for us. And God does love us. God is good. He's also just. Being just means that God has to deal with our sin. He can't ignore it. He can't look the other way. Wayne Grudem defines God's wrath this way. He said, God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. And without Jesus, we will face God's wrath. Our sin condemns us. But we have to remember Jesus brought peace with God. Jesus endured God's wrath against our sins on the cross. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25 in the New Living Translation of the Bible puts it this way. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life Shedding his blood. The truth is, is, every one of us are sinners. We're called to repent and to ask Jesus to forgive us. And the great news is, he will. In verses 23 and 24 of John 12, Jesus spoke of his saving work on our behalf, saying this. He said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. These words speak of Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead. Now, knowing that, it seems kind of strange that Jesus would refer to his death as his time of glory. He says it's the time of the Son of Man to be glorified. Certainly those people who put the palm branches on his path were clueless as to Jesus' mission. And instead of expecting Jesus to die on a cross, they pictured trumpets blaring as Jesus assumed his role on the throne for the king, to be the king of Israel. The disciples didn't understand these words of glorification either. And they didn't understand necessarily what Jesus was talking about with that grain of wheat. You know, I, I, I imagine... Peter may have had a, a puzzled look. You know, I can almost hear him muttering, why would Jesus talk about farming right after a big parade? Of course, the grain also referred to Jesus' death and his resurrection. Jesus, the grain of wheat, had to die to save us. And we are the fruit of that resurrection, death and resurrection. Jesus mediated our peace with God on the cross. Through Jesus, we are all sons and daughters of the King. When God looks at one of Jesus' followers, he doesn't see our sin. 
God sees Jesus' righteousness covering, covering over us. And that brings us to a second important lesson of this passage. It is Jesus' righteousness. He brings righteousness. The Zechariah 9 passage quoted by John not only spoke of the king coming on a donkey's colt, but it also stated in Zechariah that the king was righteous. If you look in the book of Acts, it refers to Jesus several times as the righteous one. Jesus is righteous. He's just. He's blameless. He's perfectly moral. He's honorable. He is sinless. And not only is he righteous, but he actually brings righteousness. Psalm 23 states, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Jesus taught us how to live. He shows us what is right. And the more we reflect his righteousness to our world, the more people are going to long for the kingdom of God. With this coronavirus, I don't have to remind anyone that life is a struggle. And living right is a struggle. But when Christ returns... Our world, our lives will be perfectly righteous. We'll live the right way. Sin will be forever banished. Death will be gone. Suffering will become a distant memory. And we long for those days. You know, longing for God's kingdom to reign on earth is, is kind of like dessert. Let me explain. Those of you who know me, know that dessert is my favorite part of any meal. I remember growing up as a young boy and eating Sunday dinner at my grandmother's house. My grandmother always made the, the main course. My great-grandmother was in charge of dessert. My great-grandmother made wonderful desserts. Now, my grandmother was a decent cook, but sometimes she would serve something I detested, usually some vegetable. Other times, though... Getting to dessert meant eating my grandfather's hockey pucks, as he called them. See, Grandpa loved making sausage patties for dinner on his gas grill outside. And they were usually pretty good. But my grandfather liked all his meat well done, or incinerated, as he put it. And sometimes those sausage patties were a lot like hockey pucks. They were hard, they were tasteless, and they were black. And they required a lot of ketchup. The thing is, though, is even if the main meal wasn't exactly what I wanted, I could be confident that dessert was coming. The, the best was yet to come. And through Christ, we know that dessert is coming. His righteousness will prevail. Heaven as it is today is like an indescribable dessert. When Jesus returns, bringing his perfect righteousness to earth, it's going to be even more amazing. But for day, today, we seek his righteousness and we commit to right living. The third lesson of Zechariah's prophecy quoted in John 12 is that Jesus demonstrates humility. Zechariah's prophecy stated that Jesus would be humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus referred to himself as gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem seeking personal glory. 
He didn't enter like a, a politician might enter, waving and shaking hands and kissing babies to try to win the people over. No, Jesus rode in on a donkey. Like we said, that was a symbol of humi humility. Thomas McComiskey wrote that the donkey stands out as a deliberate rejection of arrogant trust in human might, expressing subservience to the sovereignty of God. Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, he said, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count God equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. King Jesus was humble. Jesus bringing peace with God, his righteousness and his humility demand a response. And we see our response at the end of our passage from today. In John 12, 25, Jesus said, Whoever loves, this, loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What he was talking about there is the world tells us to strive for fame and for riches and for glory. It says that we should seek comfort and pleasure. And those things are not bad in, the, in themselves. But they can cause us to lose our life. If we are deeply in love with the worldly life, we risk losing eternal life. Let me say that again. If we are deeply in love with this worldly life, we risk losing eternal life. It shows that we haven't put our trust fully in Jesus. When Jesus said we are to hate this life, he didn't mean that we're to despise our life. Life is a gift itself from God. Life is sacred. Life is to be protected and cherished. And so we don't hate our life in the normal sense of hatred. Jesus was saying that our love for this life that you and I are living, it doesn't compare to our overwhelming love for God. See, we love Jesus so much that our feelings for this life look almost like hate in comparison. Loving Jesus assures us of eternal life. And then Jesus closed our passage by saying, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. When the Jews were praising Jesus on that first Palm Sunday, they were hoping that Jesus would serve them, that he would take care of them. When we elect a government official, we expect them to serve us. We kind of, to a degree, want them to take care of us. And Jesus, he did serve us. Ultimately, he served us on the cross. His sacrifice gave us the gift of eternal life that we don't deserve and that we can never repay. And in response to his great love for us, we follow Jesus. We serve him. As Pastor David stated last week, we are devoted to Christ. And part of that devotion shows up in our service. Our church's mission statement outlines our service very clearly. 
Our mission statement is this, in case you haven't seen it in a while. In Christ, we love people, we impact our community, and we make disciples. It's clear, it's simple, but we can't do it without the help of God. We are to love all people. Our desire is to, that people would trust their lives to Jesus. One of the ways we show that love is by impacting our community. We perform acts of love in our community around this church and in our neighborhoods. And we make disciples. Our desire is to help other people follow Jesus. We want to make disciples who in turn will then make disciples. And as we seek to live in service to Christ, Jesus says the Father will honor us. God will bless us as we see him at work in our life and in the lives of others. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the gift of eternal life, a gift that is free when we put our trust in your Son, a gift that we can't earn, a gift that we can't repay. Father, we thank you for the example that Jesus set. He taught us while he was walking this earth. He brought peace with you. He showed us how to live the right way. And he taught us about humility. But Father, you know we fall short. Our faith isn't always strong. We do things that we know we shouldn't do. We say things we shouldn't say. We get angry and not a righteous anger. But thanks be to you, we are forgiven through your Son. We praise him this morning. We give him honor and glory. And we'll close by praying the words commonly known as the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer. Pray this in unison. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.